I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hustlers. We know that this 2024, the entrepreneurial journey is filled with challenges. An often overlooked aspect is the time-consuming task of processing payroll and managing government requirements. And did you know that the average admin spends a whopping 50 hours per month dealing with just government compliance? That's time you could be spending on growing your business, or let's be honest, taking a well-deserved break. But fear not, we got a game changer for you, introducing Sprout Solutions and their tailored solutions for MSMEs called the Payroll Starter. With Sprout Solutions Payroll Starter, you can finally reclaim your time and get your life back on track. Say goodbye to the stress of remembering tax dates or worrying about missed payroll runs. This bundle is designed to make your life easier and your business more efficient. And here's the best part. The cost starts just at 5,000 pesos per month for businesses with up to 10 employees. Yep, you heard that right. That's just 5,000 pesos per month. So why spend another minute routing in payroll paperwork when Sprout can revolutionize the way you manage your payroll and government requirements? Take the first step towards a more efficient business today. Visit sprout.ph slash payroll starter monthly 5k. If you missed that, don't worry. We have it in the description box of this episode. So click that too. And again, big shout out to Sprout Solutions because your time is too valuable to be spent on paperwork. Reclaim it with their payroll starter. Now let's begin this episode. The Hustle Share Podcast is brought to you by B21, a platform which helps you start your journey with cryptocurrencies. Visit b21.io slash hustleshare and get $2 upon signing up. Also powered by Podmetrics, the only analytics platform you'll ever need for your podcast. Sign up now at podmetrics.co for free and use the code HUSTLESHARE. Product market fit isn't always about the product either, right? It's just finding the right market for a product that may already exist. This is the way you tinker and the side way you just find the right people, the right audience to lap up what you've tinkered. Welcome to Hustle Share, the podcast that features the daily grinds of unique hustlers around the world to show not our differences, but that our hustles are very much alike. Now here's your host, Ronster Beethoven. Welcome to the latest episode of the Hustle Share Podcast. This is our second to the last episode. And uh, before we wrap up this season, this has been amazing. And before we always wrap up our season, we try to up the ante because we're not just going to, you know, end the season with a bang. For the second to the last episode, we want to go legit as well because I'm a big fan of this company. We are a real user for our platform, Podmetrics. They enable us to pay our podcasters that we want to help. But before I get carried away, let's welcome the CEO of Zendit in the Philippines, Ms. Yang Yang Zheng. Welcome to the show, Yang Yang. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. 
Again, I'm a big fan of Zendit and a credit where Zendit is due. There, that's what I want to be able to do. Because again, it's really a big platform and I'm, I'm a big fan of what you guys have been able to do for the longest time now, especially coming from the founders like Moses and the rest of the crew. But before I get carried away, this episode is all about your hustle and the Philippines edition of Zendit. So Yang Yang, I need to ask you the million dollar question. Yang Yang, what's your hustle? <laughs> so I think maybe I started telling you a little bit of my like early childhood. My parents okay. were a little bit tiger. So okay. I started coding when I was five. So I think my five years old. Wow. <laughs> yeah, since I was five. And so I think my hustle since I was a kid was just building products. I don't think I knew that, you know, okay. when I was five, you know, I didn't know what building product was, but I think mm. it's always been about just building stuff. I've been like a tinker my whole life. I think mm-hmm. I've, you know, went to school for like computer science originally, really, really mm-hmm. loved tech from the beginning. And so I think it really has been just finding problems to solve and tinkering around them. Mm, that's amazing. So again, since you already gave us a good heads up of what this episode will be and how you progressed and again, created amazing products, I need you to buckle up because we have another product here as well, which uh, again, we've developed. I don't know who made this, but I just saw it lying around in the garage because we're going to have to ride the Hustle Share Time Machine. Sorry, Elon Musk. We beat you to the game. All right. So we're all the way back to how this started. So Yang Yang, you mentioned that you started coding at five years old. I want to understand if this was how early you were in the game, what was growing up like? And if you were coding at five years old, what were you trying to build that early? So the story is really interesting. My mom actually was a math professor in China. And when we moved over to the States, um, she actually didn't speak English well enough to keep teaching. So she decided she was going to get a distance master's in computer science. And so keep in mind, I knew nothing. I I I barely spoke English at the time. But my mom was like, hey, we're going to do this together. And so I thought this was like mommy and me time, right? Like people go to ballet with their moms. I just decoded okay. my mom. So my first languages wow. were Pascal and Fortran, definitely kind of industrial, not the kind of fun stuff that, you know, kids would okay. want to do. And I don't think I really got into it until my parents got me a book called Teach Yourself Visual C++. And I remember I opened up that book. It taught me, you know, all the like basics, like hello world and everything else. And I was like, oh my God, I can get this computer, which by the way, like back then nobody had, I get this right. computer to do anything. And so believe it or not, the very first program I ever made was a word processing program that was like a simple version of Microsoft Word, but more fun. Comic Sans. um, (laughs) But I think uh, what I ended up doing was just building like games, you know, like I built like little fun games for my little sister. She was like eight years younger than me. I built her like a a math flashcard game. I would build, you know, just like... I remember I built this like little texting. I don't know if you ever played like Dungeons and Dragons or anything, but it was like a text-based like castle to explore. I don't know. It was just so interesting to me that there was this, I was so young, but there was this piece of technology that nobody understood, including in some ways my parents. And I could get it to just do anything and just, I don't know, like it just seemed like such an awesome skill to have. That's amazing. And at that early age, you know, people struggle their whole life sometimes trying to find something that they're good at, that they're fall in love. And or there are people that also are multi-potentialite that just jumped from passion to passion. But this early already found it 
And it looks like you never fell out of love out of it. And can you now talk about at an early age, what do you do next to at least progress into this love of product encoding? So it's actually really interesting. It, the story takes a twist. I went to mm-hmm. MIT for undergrad and I started MIT. Wow. <laughs> which is computer science. This is like back in very early year. I don't want to talk about, but <laughs> <laughs> product wasn't a discipline. You know, like when I first went to school, maybe this is okay. really dating me, but I was one okay. of the first accounts on Facebook because it started between MIT and, and Harvard, right? Wow. <laughs> so I was really there at the advent of people creating really awesome, scalable products. Right. But it was a little too early in my journey to really understand how developers were part of that. So when I got to school, I was shocked because I was like, you know, I, I've loved coding my whole life. How could I possibly not love computer science if I get to do it every single day? And I realized right. it's because when you're doing it for a career, you get a script. And I didn't want that script. I wanted to be the one who wrote the script. And, but I didn't know what that meant at the time. So I actually switched out of computer science my sophomore year. I was really lost at the time. So I went between a lot of different majors. You know, maybe this is inspirational to like, you know, people who don't really know what they want to do yet. But I went through like pre-law. I went through, you know, um, a quick world through like political science. And then finally, I was like, you know what? I want something that just makes sense. And at the time, economics made sense to me. So I ended up finishing economics and management science. To me, it was like, if I can't build programs, I can't build, I can't code them. Maybe I just build businesses. And so I decided to kind of explore that. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that's kind of what threw me into this path of entrepreneurship. Amazing. All right. But you had the engineering mindset back then, right? You know, you knew how to code and you knew how to build products. So your head is wired differently. And now you have also the business sense in a perfect world, if that is married together, you can solve a lot of problems with that skill set. But on the flip side, you are an Asian American. And I understand a lot of Asian Americans who are raised in the States have high stakes because Asian American parents typically have certain paths that they want you to, to follow only, right? And, you know, there's also the, the bamboo ceiling that you have to follow through and, and whatnot. Did you have any experience going through that, that, you know, your parents went to like, all right, yang, yang, you, can, you should only be this or that and whatnot, that entrepreneurship wasn't probably one of the most popular paths you can take? Definitely not. So I remember wow. when I <laughs> was wrapping up at school and my dad was like, okay, so you were pre-law. We were really proud of you doing that. Now you're not. What about going to Wall Street? I think my dad's what? dream for me was to just go to like Goldman Sachs or like, you know, Morgan Stanley and just work there for the rest of my life and, you know, climb the corporate ladder. And I think for him, he was like, but you have the opportunity to do this. It's something that he would die to have done, you know, 20 years ago. And right. so I couldn't even articulate to him at the time why I couldn't see myself doing that. But for some reason, I knew that my personality just wasn't suited for that life. And so it was actually kind of crazy. That's what like led me down to like my first venture. I basically told my parents, like, give me the room to kind of figure myself out. And I took a job just tutoring, nothing fancy, literally just tutoring. And from there, I realized I fell in love with the education industry. And so I was at this tutoring academy, this like like nationwide chain for about four years, just kind of building up this understanding of the education industry. And I jumped ship to this tiny little tutoring company called edu for You. And what they wanted to do, because they focused on basically gifted and talented kids in like middle school. They were like, can you help me build out a high school counseling program, sending kids to Ivy League schools? 
And I was wow. like, well, you know, I know a little bit about that, you know, like, <laughs> to school. Yeah, I was in um, Ivy League too. What's up? Right. <laughs> and so I was like, hey, maybe I can try this out. You know, it seems like a fun thing to try, you know, build a business from scratch. And so it was four and a half years of the most exhausting, exhilarating time, just building a business. You know, I, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about, you know, marketing or guerrilla marketing or scale or anything. But by right. the end, I mean, like I was really proud of what we had done. And so I think that really was what threw me into this path of you could be your own boss. You know, you can, you can set your own destiny. And from that point onward, it was really, really difficult to kind of disconnect myself from that path. Got it. Now, as a first-time entrepreneur, this is also the hardest part of being an entrepreneur because, again, you're coming in raw. You don't have a lot of wisdom under your belt. And a lot of first-time entrepreneurs also tend to fall into a lot of potholes that people who are in the second or third or fourth rodeo already kind of know what to do and what not to. What were the potholes that you fell into or the early struggles of being an entrepreneur? Because, again, it's hard. You know, it's not easy to build a business anywhere. But if you're coming in as a first-time entrepreneur, the chances for failure are way higher. How did you overcome that? <laughs> so in my first venture, I remembered that I had no idea how to delegate. I literally mm. did everything. So uh, I would jump from like planning to doing like marketing events on my own to literally teaching the classes themselves. So I would teach them <laughs> an ACT boot camp and I'd run right. back to the office that set up the counseling schedule. It was insane. And so I think something I learned the hard way then is like everyone's capacity is limited. And I think that in some ways, the job of a founder is to put people in place who are better than themselves in those particular categories. And that exactly. took me at least two or three years to learn. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other, I think, big lesson I learned was scale. I think that, you know, for a long time, we built a reputation based on, again, me doing a lot of the groundwork myself. Yep. But it was so hard for me to then think about that leap towards how do we operationalize this? How do we make right. sure that someone else can come in and franchise this or come in and, you know, learn our system without taking a year to sit next to me in the office? Perfect. And so I think that was two really valuable lessons. But Hard one, hard one lessons. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, I, I empathize so well because as a startup entrepreneur or any type of entrepreneur at your first one, you're just really gung-ho to hustle. But you can be your own worst enemy as well because you're preventing your business to scale if you're doing everything. And again, no matter how much an entrepreneur wants to delegate, at their first try, you just want to be able to get their feet, which is good because at the end of the day, if you also did those jobs as well, the people that you delegate to can't tell you nothing. I'm like, yeah, this, this is so hard. Like, nah, I've done that shit before too. So don't tell me it can't be done as well. So you, you earn your stripes. Now, after that, you went all the way to the Bay and worked on product. And I want to now know how that shift was like in terms of, you know, uh, your mindset, building all these startups that you did in the Bay area. So, this is actually an even crazier story. <laughs> so I wouldn't say that it was at the end of that journey. It was during that journey. A right. friend of mine had an uncle who was an angel investor and gotcha. came to me and said, I'm looking for founders. Mm. Honestly, up until that point, having built that business, I didn't think of myself as a founder because we had never gone out and courted VC funding in my first venture. Wow. And so he came to us and said, Hey, I'm looking for founders. I think you're really smart. I think we can build something. 
would you move to the Valley and do this? And I'm like, I have a whole business I'm running. I can't do that. And so after a lot of negotiation, believe it or not, I was on a schedule where I would fly up to San Francisco every Sunday night and fly back to Southern California every Thursday night to run the existing education business. But Monday through Thursday, I was full-time in the Valley, (laughs) raising funds, um, hiring a team, figuring out how to do product for the first time. Because I told you, when I left school, product wasn't a thing. I don't know, maybe eight years since I had left school and started this next venture. It's next to, you know, Umami, this this Valley um, startup. That was when startup life took off. And so I was literally teaching myself like UX design best practices when it came to design thinking, all the while heading product for the startup. Mm -hmm. And so it's so interesting because it was such a wild ride. I was exhausted again, but (laughs) it just kept me going because I love learning, right? And like every single day on the job, I wasn't just building two different businesses. I was building them and also learning myself and expanding my whole view. And so I think after I did that particular startup, I was like, I love this role of product. It's everything I've ever wanted, right? You get to do the tech. You have to think so much about how you're going to you know, plan everything out and build the right roadmap and not build tech debt. At the same time, you have to think about all the business stuff and you get to write the script for everyone else. Right. That's amazing. Now, how did you double down? So if this is your, your calling, you fell, fell in love with product and, you know, and everything around it, how do you double down to really become really good and be involved and write the script for, for your life per se? So this is actually, you know, going back to pitfalls. When I realized both the good and bad of being in that role, because ultimately in product, what you're looking at every day is a series of problems, right? You talk to your customers, you figure out what their pain points are, and then you solve them. But fundamentally at this startup, and it was an amazing experience, but fundamentally, we did not have that problem statement. We did not have that pain point that was so urgent that we had to go solve it. So by the way, Umami was meant to let people share their best social experiences with others. The problem is Instagram had solved it a couple of years ago and solved it really, really well as we know today. And it was really difficult for us. I think like at some point along the way, the product became a bit of a Frankenstein. We were doing like a combination of Yelp and Spotify. So maybe it's basically like the list function. There was so much we tried to throw into it to try to save it and find a problem, but we ultimately Mm. didn't have something that people really needed. And so I think this is where, when you were saying, how did you double down? I think through this product discovery process, I realized what it really took to build that incredible product, which is finding a pain point that people really needed. Correct. Problem, solution, fit right there because you can't scale something. Again, one of the biggest mistakes, my first startup failed to Yang Yang. And one thing, I think I had problem, solution, fit, but I had, a. Uh, again, there's so many factors that needs to go right for you to become successful. I had the wrong business model. People love to use it, but it's like a dating app. A dating app is basically your most successful metric is equals to churn because as you get people hooked up, you lose them forever. So for me, my first startup was a nightlife app getting you to the guest list of clubs. So let's say you get someone to be successfully turned into a party animal. By the time they become a their second or third visit, you don't see them back again because they already know someone in the club and they don't need your app anymore. 
right? So it's yeah, those, those are the nuances, but totally agree because a lot of again startups tend to get enamored. Hey, I'm going to build a business. I'm going to hire a team, blah, blah, blah. But it starts with the core functionality of are you building something that people would want to use often? Do you have a surreal solution to a problem? So after that ended, what did you do next? So actually, it was quite interesting because we didn't wind down the startup. So I was met with a very interesting offer. And wow. I think somewhere along the way, near the end of you know my journey with my first sort of like Valley startup, I read a quote that sticks with me to today. And it says that really great founders fall in love with the problem and not the solution. And so I think at the moment when I realized, oh my gosh, I'm only in love with the solutions that we're building. I am not in love with the problem that's being set in front of me. I had this unconscious awakening to other opportunities. And I remember one day, one of the parents of my one of my former just you know clients at this you know educational academy called me and i swear in that moment i was like what did i do what how would i screw up on like what what, why is (laughs) a year like something had to have gone wrong with this kid afterwards and he's like you know hey can can we meet but at my offices and i was like that's interesting (laughs) what did i do (laughs) exactly what did i do i I don't even your kids aren't even our clients anymore Um, (laughs) so i get to his office and i actually didn't really remember what he did but i get to his office Mm -hmm. and he's like hey so i heard you're looking at other opportunities now i know that you were like super like gung-ho committed to like the education startup but if you're looking at other opportunities i just want to let you know we're this environmental tech company publicly Mm -hmm. listed in korea We've been trying to kickstart our Western operations for about eight wow. years, running deeply in the red. Wow. And he said, my CMO is leaving after 17 years. So what do you think you could come on board? And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. <laughs> and I was like, wait, well, hold on a second. Let, let me give you some caveats. I don't know anything about civil engineering. I don't know anything right. about environmental tech. Why do you want me to do this? And he said, I think marketing is all about vision, about being able to capture someone's vision. And he literally said, when I read my son's application essay, it was the first time someone had captured my vision on paper. And in my heart, I'm like, oh my God, your kid's not going to get into school. (laughs) 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 In that moment, I was also like, okay, well, that makes a little bit of sense, you know, but like, you know, I have no formal marketing experience. I've only done like guerrilla style marketing for my own startups. And he's like, that's what I need. I've had all of this formal marketing, you know, like framework within the company. It's not working. I need someone who just gets the Western mindset. This is sort of my first foray into market expansion, right? He's like, and I need you to turn a product that has 98% market share in Korea into something that just turns a profit in the US, turns a profit in the Western markets. And so I was like, okay. And this is also, this is the guy from which I learned a lot of stuff about just management and just being a great boss also. And I said, look, I don't have time. I'm running this other, you know, startup in the Valley. Like I'm still kind of closing things up with the education company. I really don't have time. He's like, okay, come back on Monday. Let's talk about it. Let's think about what you want out of this and what I want out of this. I just want more time from you. You tell me what you want in order to like make this work. And so when I came back, I said, I'm applying to business school. I just want a killer recommendation letter. Super honest about it. I can give you a year and I can give you 10 hours a week. And he said, okay, give me 15 hours and I'll give you the CMO title. 
Wow. And I was a scared 28-year-old kid <laughs> looking at this guy who was like, I have had this 18-year-old company. Do you want to basically take over and run marketing strategy and like market entry strategy, basically? Right. And so I think there was a really scary moment. I remember I went out to my car, called my best friend, and literally just screamed. <laughs> and I came back the next day and I said, let's do it. So I think that's how I joined wow. BKT. It was, I think over the first like year or so after I joined, it was quite clear that that was where my heart was. And I think the reason was that even though it was in a very unsexy industry, it worked primarily on wastewater treatment for industry, for municipals, uh, like municipal wastewater treatment plants. It was a problem I cared about. It was something that taught me the importance of working on the infrastructure level. And ultimately, it gave me exposure to like a completely different world of entrepreneurship. And so I think for me, what ended up happening, by the way, was that I got into business school and he turned to me and said, again, what do you want at the end of your two years of business school after you pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in tuition? Right. And I said, I don't know. I guess I want to do really cool things. I want to like work in other markets. I want to do all that. And he's like, or you could stay here and get a real life MBA and get paid for it. Right. And we can work on IPO strategy for our NASDAQ IPO. And I was like, sold. <laughs> Let's do that. That's amazing, right? Because again, that's what startup life forces you to do, right? Everything that you get, I'm not, I'm not against MBA, of course. If I, I had a chance, I had resources, I would have gotten MBA. But all of those things are now applied into real life that you can actually put in the work, that every, all the theories that you're going to learn and the thesis and whatnot you have something to show for. But you mentioned earlier that when you took this job, all you did was guerrilla marketing. What are the skills that you had to acquire and, and the methodologies that you, you acquired, especially, and again, in an unsexy sector that you mentioned, what are those things that you applied to make sure that you hit the metrics that they cared about the most? I think this is probably my favorite part of this company in particular. What I learned was that marketing in a tech company and product are super tied because ultimately you are creating a product in the lab, but then you're creating the product again when you sell it to customers, right? So a lot of that skill set is very similar. It's talking to customers, figuring out what they actually need and making sure that what you're creating matches that need or that you are giving your product team, your engineers, the right feedback to make sure that they're iterating in the right direction and in a great startup. And this is the, one of the things I really needed to learn, right? I had only ever been in that sort of seed stage startup up to that point. Yeah. What I needed to learn was how do you find product market fit? And ultimately the two halves of that is that the business side has to talk to the customer, but hand off seamlessly to the product and engineering teams and really work together to figure out what is the market crying out for. And we hit it out of the park in a very strange way. Mm -hmm. So in Korea, this company focused on livestock wastewater treatment. It's probably the least sexy of a very (laughs) unsexy Yes. (laughs) I can't even imagine like, what the fuck do you guys do there? (laughs) Imagine pitching that to a bunch of customers. What that really meant was that you're just tr- you have the ability to treat some really dirty water that nobody else wants to touch. Dirty and, jobs. Yeah. And in the States at the time, it was 2015. 
and the shale gas industry was going through a major boom. And so I like to say that we were the good guys of fracking. So fracking is this like type of, you know, energy mining where you inject water into the ground, breaks mm-hmm. of the like bedrock, releases a shale gas that you can then kind of harvest and use for energy. Wow. The problem with shale gas drilling at the time was that people would re-inject the frack water over and over. And mm. the it was cheaper to pay the fines to the EPA or to literally truck the dirty water to a place where they did not mandate that you clean it than it was to actually clean the water and build a facility on site. Mm. So we said, look, we have this really modular technology, super lightweight. It sits on farms. So people have to move it around the farm anyway. Why don't you try cleaning your frack water with this? And that was the first time I realized product market fit isn't always about the product either, right? It's just finding the right market for a product that may already exist. Exactly. And that was exhilarating. That was like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I think I figured this out end to end. You know, like there's the, mm-hmm. there's the side where you tinker and the side where you just find the right people, the right audience to lap up what you've tinkered. Absolutely. Now, in terms of product market fit, usually, again, a lot of people mess this up because they scale prematurely without finding that, right? Especially mm-hmm. in, in the startup world. But when you do, again, which is probably the best feeling in the world, what were those metrics? Because I think when you do have product market fit, that's your signal to then scale, right? What did you then do when you found it? All right, I found the golden goose. Here we go. How do we scale this whole thing up? So I think that for me, the clear metric for product market fit is one, I think organic leads, people reaching out to you to find out more. And the second is just percentage month on month growth. Which is for you, what would be that? The MOM. Yeah, just the MOM. The amount, like 30% month on month. That's the Y Combinator bar. But it's also, it doesn't matter what your baseline is, right? It sounds scary. And of course, as you get bigger, you have to find that momentum to, you know, build more and more on each other, right? There has to be that like clear momentum. But at the same time, it means that when you are just starting out, that growth month on month could be very small because you're starting from a very low baseline. What, but what product market fit means is that you don't really have a flat month because yes. as your product continues to build that traction, more and more people find out about it. And at least the number of inquiries are coming in, um, start to increase. It has to become easier and easier for you to right. be able to attract new interest. And so I think for me, I felt like that was the bar at which we could then say, let's invest some serious capital into, you know, doing a roadshow. Like let's build collateral around like this particular use case and other case studies that are different for this product. Right. So I think before that, we'd always been thinking of such a single tracked mind, you know, this is what worked in Korea. This is what should work in these new markets. That was the first time I realized, okay, we can scale if we just find brand new applications for the same technology we already had, if we customize it correctly. That is amazing. And again, product market fit is, is again, the, the, the month-on-month growth momentum. And uh, also, you, you mentioned YC. Gary Tan of YC, who, who recently guested also with Justin Khan, both YC former partners, right? They always said that product market fit feels like you're drinking off of a fire hose. Like you can't keep up with the demand because it just keeps on coming. So until you have product market fit, guys, you need to be in that constant search of that golden pot, uh, the, the pot of gold under behind the rainbow. Because when you find it, 
it just keeps on coming. Now, let's take our first break, Yang, and when we come back, let's now talk about what you did with PDAX and the rest of your stuff and all the way to send it. All right, let's talk about that more after the break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey guys, I have a very, very exciting opportunity I want to share with you guys. If you're a B2B startup founder, listen up. Your ticket to growth is here. Introducing Impact24, the Philippines' largest B2B SaaS challenge. Calling all startups in their pre-launch, pre-seed, or seed stages. This is your chance to accelerate their growth. Submit your pitch to Impact24 and get ready for a 10-week intensive program to elevate your solution. What's in it for you? How about up to 500,000 pesos in MVP project support, exclusive credits from industry partners, personalized mentoring, and a shot to pitch at SASCON PH, the country's biggest SAS conference this April. But yo, you gotta hurry up because submissions close on January 26, 2024 already. Don't miss out on this opportunity to take your startup to new heights. Apply now at saschallenge.ph that's sasschallenge.ph. And good luck, and I'll see you guys in Impact 24. Hey, and we're back from the break. We're still with Yang Yang Zhang, who again told us how the product market fit feels like. And again, I love talking about product because, again, in the Philippines, at least, the startup ecosystem here, there's a lot of great talent. But for some reason, we just don't want to build our own product. We sell our own talent as services all the time. This is one perfect example that, hey, if you just use it and to solve a problem, we are more than qualified to get that done. But before I get carried away, I also want to, again, do a little shout out to our friends. We want to say hi and big thanks to the guys from Kumu. Kumu is the Pinoy live streaming app where we can connect or make tambay with Filipino streamers and celebrities. Use our link in the description to follow some amazing Kumu streamers but i want to find out so you've been in the valleys this whole time how did you end your stint in bkt and how did you get all the way to southeast asia and across the pacific so i think the interesting part about the uh, bkt journey is that it wraps up in a completely different way so i think we started mm-hmm. off you know super commercial thinking about how to scale the business how to you know enter new markets mm-hmm. and then as we started considering this nasdaq ipo pretty seriously we realized that something we were missing is csr we had never really thought about, you know, what we were giving back. You know, this was something that a lot of, you know, companies have to kind of write about as part of their S1. And so I was given the task of kind of figuring out what that would look like. And so we spun out a company called Tomorrow Water. And mm. 
I credit kind of the experience starting this particular division with bringing me to Southeast Asia and kind of bringing me to the rest of where my, I guess, career passions or startup passions led. Got it. Because basically we did a lot of work with the UN. We built an initiative with the UN Sustainable Development Goals Committee worked really closely with them in emerging markets in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, donating our technology and basically figuring out a way that we would be able to help them basically change their wastewater infrastructure without putting a ton of upfront capital costs. Got it. So I think in terms of, you know, what I fell in love with as part of this initiative, it really was the ability to work on an infrastructure level we worked with the governments of Vietnam and Malaysia. Um, we worked with them on kind of revamping their kind of nationwide uh, wastewater infrastructure. Okay. Um, we basically did a lot of consulting with the UN, um, ended up kind of bidding for a project in Rwanda. And so I think that after I had more international exposure, it made me realize that the real potential lay in these infrastructure builds, particularly in emerging markets where even incremental improvements had really far-ranging consequences in a positive way. And so that's kind of what took me to exploring the next stage of my career. Um, the company was actually acquired. And so I chose that. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of been through all parts of the startup life cycle at this point, right? Right. And I chose to kind of explore something else. So I think the company was based in Korea and my now husband was uh, working in Korea at the time. Mm-hmm. So we moved out there. And that question. Kind of there. There you yeah. Go. <laughs> kind of started to explore from there to see what I wanted to do next. All right. Now, from that point on, I wanted to then find out how did PDAX happen? And again, just for those people who haven't heard about it, I sure have. Can you explain what PDAX did and what did you build from that point on? Yeah. So I think that in terms of how it happened, it was quite interesting. For those of you who don't know what arbitrage is, arbitrage is when the same asset is sold for vastly different prices in two different markets. Right. So basically, there was an incredible arbitrage for Bitcoin and a couple of other you know, cryptos in 2017 between the Korean and the US markets. And mm. the reason that we really started looking at crypto was that we saw a 40-45% arbitrage at times. Wow. And of course, <laughs> my involvement in this sort of arbitrage trading was building this, you know, the script that would track mm. when the arbitrage opened and asked the people involved, hey, we need sh- we should trade now. But you know, I had never, you know, kind of tracking back through the whole journey, I never really been interested in the finance portion. I was I fascinated by who had created this really interesting asset? How could anyone want it 40% more in one country than it do in another, right? Right. And so basically what I really wanted to delve into was what is the technology behind this? Mm. And then I discovered the world of blockchain. And so right. I think that after I started thinking about, you know, the actual technology behind this, what blockchain meant, what were the possibilities, you know, for what it could be applied to in the future. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is it. You know, this is what my next venture should be. Because I think after I left PKT, I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial again. And I knew I wanted to be a founder. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wanted to sit to head product in my next venture. Yep. So all of this kind of came together as a perfect storm. After looking at all the applications of blockchain, I figured out that the top kind of immediate applications were decentralized finance mm-hmm. and cross-border remittance. Wow. And then when we started to select a market, the Philippines just jumped out. It had that 
what I call primordial soup of like the right levers. Really, Goldilocks. The Goldilocks level. (laughs) It had regulators that were supportive and pretty open. It had, you know, no existing order book exchange. So it it did have, you know, crypto wallets that existed, but there wasn't an exchange that, you know, operated the way the PSE does, right? There wasn't like a full order book exchange in the market. Mm-hmm. And it also just seemed ripe for disruption. It was a market that had a lot of, you know, like opportunities, but one in which there hadn't really been a fintech that had scaled up to that point. Yep. And so said, okay, let's leave this up to fate. Let's start emailing the BSP. If the BSP takes a meeting with us, we'll do it. It was um, my husband, me, and one Filipino co-founder. Okay. And after a couple of months of harassing the BSP, they actually set a meeting. So nice. we flew over from Korea and I just remember walking to the BSP for the first time. And I looked down at the signup sheet. I thought it was going to be a 30 minute meet and greet. And the yep. signup sheet said at the time we were called something else, but it was our, our name meeting two to 6 yep. PM with a signup sheet. And I thought to myself, if they're going to take four hours to meet with us, they're serious. Yep. And I think that from that very first day, it was very clear to me that the BSP was a kind of regulator it would take to really innovate in the world of finance. Yeah, I think that there were some really charged moments in that first meeting. I remember one of the directors asking me, isn't Ethereum a scam? But the thing is, at least they're asking their questions, right? Like they could have just dismissed us, they could have ignored us. They're curious. And so I think by the end of those four hours, there was this surreal moment when I realized I've just had an honest, genuine conversation with a central bank. Where else, when else will I be able to do this? And I think less than a month later, my husband had quit his job in Korea. I had quit mine. We just wrapped everything up and moved to the Philippines. Now, again, it's a brand new market for you. You have a very supportive central bank with a very big building and you can easily get lost there. <laughs> Been there a couple of times. <laughs> but I now want to find out what were the challenges setting up shop here in the Philippines? Because again, you've had experience now setting up and, and running startups and businesses also across the world. And in the Philippines, what were the cha- early challenges you had working here and setting up, a, again, a crypto startup at the very least, at least here? I think that early on, it was quite difficult for me to unravel the very, very tight-knit community that is the Philippines. The business interests, you know, there are so many layers to how every conglomerate, you know, operates internally and also how every conglomerate operates with every other conglomerate. There are a lot of layers to every business relationship that is forged. And I think that it took me a while to adapt to that because I had come from Western markets, right? I'd come from, you know, doing the opposite, taking very complex relationships and simplifying them, you know, to fit Western frameworks. And so... It was interesting because I realized after a while that the best way to approach all these relationships is just transparency. It's probably better to describe and work through all the pitfalls ahead of time, all the conflicts of interest, talk about the worst case scenario, rather than waiting for them to pop up later. And so I think once that kind of clicked, the market just seemed a lot simpler to me because then we could go into these conversations really transparently kind of hold true to a particular mission, which at PDAX, you know, at the time was to build out this like new 
you know, financial infrastructure on top of the blockchain. Right. And I think that really just kind of simplified conversations moving forward. Got it. All right. Now, how did you guys build a team? Because you, you did this for a couple of years. Were there big strides that you did or were there also, again, unexpected pitfalls aside from the conglomerate being a tough nut to crack? So I think maybe this also speaks to why I eventually left as well. But I think mm-hmm. that we, you know, talked a lot, talked a lot about, you know, find, falling in love with a problem. I've talked a lot about, you know, narrowing down our product market fit. Mm-hmm. And I think that fundamentally what I realized halfway through is that my co-founder, uh, the third co-founder and my husband and I weren't really aligned on the ultimate goal of what we were trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And I think to no fault of anyone involved, we, I guess we had such big dreams in the beginning that when we started narrowing down to find that product market fit, we realized that our theses were so different because PDAX in and of itself was kind of two beasts, right? There was this order book exchange where, you know, we were allowing for the free trade of, you know, cryptos um, of, you know, other sort of tokenized assets on an exchange. Right. But there's this whole other side where you know, what do we do with that exchange once it's up? Are we going to explore these kind of cross-border remittance use cases and then explore more and more of these tokenized assets? And I think that fundamentally, those are conversations that we didn't think needed to be had earlier because the dream was so big, the order of how we accomplished it didn't seem important at the time. And so I think the biggest pitfall was sometimes when you have that massive product market fit, it's almost too big. And then the prioritization between the problems you want to solve becomes the issue. And so I think that, you know, for what we realized after about, you know, two years is that, you know, my heart was really in that decentralized finance side, right? My heart was really in this future world of blockchain, whereas I feel like the immediate product market fit comes in the form of the trading itself. And I think that the problem we fall in love with was no longer the problem we were solving on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Got it. All right. Now that makes a lot of sense. Now let's talk about send it, right? Because again, after PDAX, eventually after a few months, you you joined send it. And just 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 a quick side note before we talk about send it. I recently listened to a podcast where Moses Lowe, the founder of send it, talked about his experience in YC, how he was able to found Moses, and this is he talked about it in with Justin Khan in the Quest podcast, and how send it literally pivoted early because their first value proposition wasn't a good fit and they adapted the cockroach startup mentality for a while until they decided that, all right, we're in the middle of pandemic. Instead of playing the defensive, they went, all right, let's expand to the Philippines after Indo. If that's their background, I want to also know how you got to know Moses and the team and what was the, the next goal send it when this was their background so <laughs> uh anyone listening to this will eventually just figure this girl has to either be the most lucky or unlucky person <laughs> <laughs> i decided to leave pdax around april of 2019 and wow. it was a really tough decision we had just closed series a and i felt like that was the best time to leave because you know the company had plenty of runway plenty of time to find replacements okay. and at the time, I realized I'm exhausted. I've been working nonstop for a decade without a single sabbatical. I just want to travel and find myself. And sometime right before my husband and I decided to go on the sabbatical, I was introduced to Moses by a friend. Mm. And it wasn't a recruiting conversation at all. 
Moses was just happened to be in the Philippines. He was kind of looking at potential opportunities in the Philippines. Just wanted to talk to other people in fintech, pick their brains. And I remember I sat down to lunch with Moses and within 10 minutes of him describing what Zendit was trying to do in Indonesia and had accomplished in Indonesia, I was like, if you don't enter this market, you're crazy. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, no one's told me that. People tell me it's really hard to enter the Philippines market. It feels like the Philippines are so figured out because there's so many payments companies. There's, you know, there's Instapay coming in. There's just so many things that, you know, make it feel like it'd be so hard for us to differentiate ourselves here. Mm. I said, you know what differentiates Zendit from all of the other players currently? It's the fact that Zendit talks about building payments infrastructure. And maybe it's just because that was a trigger word for me but it's because the products that Zendit seeks to build are products that don't exist in the market before it enters. And I think that fundamentally, there are a lot of payments companies that you know, try to commercialize what's already out there, but very few that are, have that mad scientist personality of let's go to the bank. Let's go to that e-wallet and figure out how we get them to build the stuff that the customers really need. Right. And in that moment, I was like, one, definitely kindred spirits in that aspect, but also right. like you guys need to enter this market. Mm-hmm. So by the end of that lunch, he looks at me and he goes, you want to do this together? Like, do you want to work together? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get to a sabbatical. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, I was like, hey, I, I have a one-way ticket to Europe. <laughs> I was leaving in like a week. I don't know when I'm going to be back in Asia. And he's like, okay, cool. You know what? Can I just ping you from time to time? Like, you know, let the team ping you if we need like some intros or something. So over the next like four months or so, like my husband and I were eating our way through Italy, like literally carbs at every meal. Mm -hmm. And I would occasionally just get these pings from either Moses or someone else on the team, just randomly like, you know, hey, do you know anyone at security bank? Hey, do you know anyone, you know? And when I caught myself, like literally sitting on a beach, like in Italy, talking to my husband about like Zendit's potential to enter this market. I was like, Oh shoot, maybe I care. <laughs> maybe I'm like kind of invested in this. Oh man. He, he left the inception in you already. <laughs> and Thank I think you, the reason was that I remember when I was building PDAX, when I was building our platform, I spent a year and a half basically trying to build an internal Zendit. We had to talk to all of our payments partners one by one. We had to go and try to explore brand new products because we, we couldn't find the solutions provider out there to solve our problem. Yep. And, and in my mind at the time, it was always they need to enter. How do I encourage them to enter? And then one day Moses pings me. He's like, hey, I had this reminder on my calendar. I should, I should ping you on this day. You said you were maybe heading back to Asia. And I was like, oh, you're right. I actually did finally book a ticket back, but we're wow. going to Singapore because, you know, I think my husband and I want to move to Singapore. And he's like, cool, um, I'll fly out. Let's have dinner. And so I was like, okay, that, that works. And over that dinner, basically what we realized is one, we think about entering markets the same way, right? In entering a market doesn't mean you build a carbon copy of what you had in the previous market or in any other market. It means you listen to what the customers in that market want. And you decide at that time, how much of your previous product set even belongs over in the new one. We also had the same mentality to needing to be really, really scrappy and not just entering, you know, as a regional company, you know, guns blazing hundred person team. It's really about treating each expansion as if it were, 
a cockroach fighting to survive, right? Exactly. Lean team, figure out their product market fit, then we scale. And so I think after that conversation, I was like, you know, if I haven't stopped thinking about this company for months, if I really love the founder's mentality, I think this is something that's worth my time to basically kind of be a solo founder on the ground, right? But also just have the support of an amazing infrastructure back at the home office to try to start something crazy on the ground here. And so I didn't, so I joined. It was, I think, five months between the time that, you know, my first day and the time that I like sat down to lunch with Moses for the first time. But as he says, it's always about meeting the right people and less about, you know, the right time or anything else. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Now, okay, you said you wanted to move to Singapore. How did, and again, the pandemic hit and Moses talked about it, like, you know, you were starting this out and you literally launched in the middle of the pandemic. What are the moves you did? that you were able to do it in a stockroach stealth mode in Zendit and still achieve scale fastly. Because again, we heard about you right away and we had a very, very superior product that we used. So how did that work? So I remember, so I joined in September of 2019. The lockdown happened in March. And when March hit one, Zendit put in a hiring freeze. Imagine being a brand new startup trying to build new products no new people. Shit. The second wow. <laughs> was that we had no products live at the time. We hadn't launched yet. Yeah. And so basically, I remember the team was scared, right? We, we really had, at that point, maybe we were only eight or nine people on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I looked at them and I said, look, this isn't over. You know, like what this means is that we just have to get more innovative about the products that we are building. It means that maybe we're not going to have the luxury of porting over products that we know are going to be easy sells. Maybe Got we it. can't put over, you know, credit cards and all these other things that we already had, but let's go find that silver bullet product. Got and it. then we built direct debit. And so I think for us, direct debit was that kind of first to market product that no one else had. It allows you to actually pull funds from bank accounts for the first time, instead of, you know, having people have to push out from their own bank accounts. Yep. And we launched that with grad pay, maybe three or four months after the lockdown. And wow. it really was just, it was a matter of prioritizing and sacrificing a lot of our former plans in order to put our eggs in that basket. And I think at that point, what we really believed in was this is solving a problem for the entire market, not just for one customer. We knew it was gonna solve a problem for a lot of people. And so we put everything towards it. And I think we've just kind of been riding like the momentum from that one success ever since. And of course, now we've filled in the rest of our product portfolio and now we have a full you know, set of products. But right. I think at that terrifying moment, I remember we pulled all of our resources, we borrowed resources from Indonesian teams and we said, let's just make sure this product can launch. Makes a lot of sense. And now I, I want to understand also, this is reminiscent of your past hustles also, where now there's momentum. Were there inflection points that you said, all right, I think we're getting near to that golden goose again here in the Philippines and talk about how you're able to scale that. Because again, a lot of Filipino startups also need to hear this because sometimes they get stuck on second gear where, okay, you get problem solution fit, but they stuck in between that and product market fit, which is, again, it's a case-to-case basis. How did you accumulate momentum faster? And how can the other startups also at least replicate that type of success here? So I think a lot of what we wanted to focus on was 
even though we had kind of put all of our eggs in with this one basket and really believed in this first like direct debit product, Mm-hmm. We never stopped trying to find other problems to solve along the way, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it comes down to not thinking that MVP is it. I think that you have to think of that. It's a marathon, right? Everyone right. thinks, you know, I, I sprint to this one product. Customers are going to flock to us. That's okay. not true. I think that by the time, and it sounds, you know, discouraging if you think about it, you know, in this way, but by the time your product launches, you have to know that next inflection point to make it better. You have to be obsessed with the next level of that product by the time it's launched, if you Mm -hmm. want it to be a success, because it has to constantly be improving. We have to constantly be exploring new channels to add to this. We have to be exploring new partnerships, talking to even more customers, trying to find out what their pain points were, and then build along the way. And so I think along that sense, that's how we ended up, you know, having partnerships, all three of the largest e-wallets here. Um, We saw that no other payment gateway offered that. So we went out and we built those partnerships, even though we had no resources to actually build out those integrations until much later. We did things like build this pay later platform because we wanted to end predatory lending and we didn't want to build our own pay later product, but we wanted to be able to offer a platform to make it easier for merchants to offer it. We struck those partnerships months before we were able to roll out the product. And so I think it really comes down to that like sense of like never stop hustling, right? Even yes. if you can never rest on your laurels, you can do, have one triumph, but the moment you stop growing, the moment you stop thinking that you need to grow every single minute, that's mm-hmm. when you start dying. That is amazing. All right, now let's take our last break. And when we come back, I want to know more. How do you actually want to scale this? Because you have a little, not a little, uh, this up and coming accelerator that Filipino startups and businesses can take advantage of in Send It. But let's talk about that more after the break. Hey, Hustlers, it's time to talk business once again, and we're excited to share a bit more info about our sponsors, Sprout Solutions. And again, just like what I said at the start of the episode, you should check out Sprout's Payroll Starter as you grow your own startup. Because this bundle that they have is literally what you need to take your startup to the next level as you grow your employees. And this bundle is your key to freedom, including payroll outsourcing to experts, a subscription to timekeeping and attendance software, and government compliance services. Sprout's Payroll Starter has you covered for payroll, BIR, SSS, and taxes. All the stuff that no founder loves to do. So let Sprout handle the busy work and say goodbye to lines and tax payment stress. All this for as low as 5,000 pesos. Again, that's just 5,000 pesos all in for your payroll and HR needs. So visit sprout.eh payroll-starter-monthly-5k or again, just click the link in the description box of this episode to elevate your business management game. And again, big thank you to Sprout Solutions liberating your time for what truly matters. Hey hustlers, wish there was an easy way to open a bank account and grow your money without the hassle of lengthy application process and income documents? Well, I got good news because today's sponsor, Uno Digital Bank, is here to help you achieve your financial goals. You can easily open an account with the Uno app in just five minutes and one valid ID. And as one of the six digital banks licensed by the Banco Central ng Pilipinas, the company is committed to providing customers with simpler, better, and more accessible banking. 
Last year, Uno Bank was recognized by the Asia Banking and Finance Awards and bagged the title Open Banking Initiative of the Year due to the success of its partnership with Gcash, one of the Philippines' leading mobile wallet platforms. And with the Uno mobile app, you can access an hashtag UnoReady savings account and enjoy daily interest crediting. With their hashtag UnoEarn or hashtag UnoBoost time deposit accounts, you can enjoy a high interest rate of up to 6.5% per annum. Enjoy monthly payouts with hashtag UnoEarn and flexible tenors with hashtag UnoBoost. Other app features include pay bills, the Uno Virtual Debit MasterCard, life insurance, scan and pay with QRPH, and phones. And the one thing that I really love about Uno Digital Bank is they're open to collaborate with a lot of Filipino startups. I've had a chance to see the partnerships that they've had lined up with the startups that they have, and it's truly exciting to see how a digital bank like Uno can enable startups to unlock the power of fintech through digital banking. So if you're ready to elevate your banking experience, download the Uno mobile app today from the Google Play Store or App Store. Or if you want to collaborate with them, I'll be happy to give you an intro. Just shoot us an email at hello at huffleshare.com. Hey, Hustlers, I hope you're having a great 2024 so far. As you know, a lot of startups had a very challenging 2023, and hopefully things are going to do better this year for a lot of us. Not just because it's the year of the dragon, but also because our sponsor, Dragon Pay, is here to help your startups process payments in the most efficient way. Established in 2010, Dragon Pay empowers businesses of all sizes to accept and disperse payments through secure and convenient channels, giving your customers the flexibility to choose the payment method that suits them best. With over 85 partner channels, 35,000 partner branches nationwide, including QRPH, e-wallets, crypto, buy now, pay later, and many more. They also process an astonishing 15 million transactions processed globally each month. Dragon Pay is your trusted choice for online payments. And here's something to show you how legit Dragon Pay is. Dragon Pay was named FinTech of the Year at last year's Philippine FinTech Festival in 2020. So let's make 2024 extra prosperous for you and your startup in this year of the Dragon. For more details, head on over to dragonpay.ph. That's dragonpay.ph. Trust the pioneer, trust Dragon Pay. And we're back in the break. We are still with Yang Yang Zhang, again, who told us again how she now got into Zendit and how I was able to scale fast. But I want to understand, I'm also in the process of expanding in Indonesia. We have a team of around five now in Indo. And this is the first time that I've ever expanded the business overseas. This is my 10th year as a startup, 11th year actually, a startup founder. And it's scary as hell. I don't, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like that first startup all over again and, I know some, some things are up, apply in Indo from the Philippines, but there are a lot of nuances and we have to adjust on. And I want to understand from your point of view, what the dynamics are that you have with the head office in Jakarta when, when you did this with Moses? Because again, you, it seems that you had the meeting of the minds moment. Still, there's going to be a lot of nuances uh, that you have to do and you still have a, to have a lot of wiggle room to do, to do you and make Zendit as big as it is now here in the Philippines. How did that dynamic work? I think I was fortunate in that Zendit has an an experiments framework already. So I think for Mm. us, an experiment team is basically like a SWAT team of Mm. 
five people, that, that's usually where we cap it, that goes out, explores a problem, finds product market fit. And if we find, if we clear that 30% month on month growth bar, then that wow. team gets resourced to turn into a real product. So the Philippines was the largest, most ambitious experiment we've ever taken on, but it still took the same mindset. So I think early on, maybe almost a year, the Philippines ran very independently from the home office, particularly through the early part of COVID because everything had to pivot really quickly. We had to make a lot of decisions, you know, day to day that really, you know, affected the roadmap. We really couldn't plan the same way that, you know, the rest of the company as like a series B startup could plan. Got it. And then just about six months ago, we really started this effort to, as we started to see, you know, traction build up in the Philippines, it was quite clear that the Philippines was here to stay. We mm. really started this effort of trying to integrate it back into our BAU operations. Mm. And so now we've kind of settled on this hybrid model that I really love, which is that we get to take advantage of economies of scale. Obviously, yes. a lot of the operational stuff needs to be centralized in order for us to continue to grow. So I think things like customer success, our customer success team is regional. Our product specialists are regional. A lot of what that operation side is regionalized as much as possible, particularly so that we can take advantage of like machine learning based fraud detection. We don't want to have to build out two models for two different countries. Absolutely. What remains very localized are a couple of functions. So on the partnership side, because partnerships is so specific to each country and it involves so many soft skills, that partnership side is always localized, always still, you know, run from the ground level. Mm. The second aspect is government relations and compliance. I think on that aspect, because we're a tech company, a lot of the government relations and compliance side touches upon the products we actually build, right? Because even in terms of our onboarding process, like, you know, it's highly customized per country. So I think in terms of determining the products associated with that and also just, you know, maintaining those relationships with regulators, that's extremely localized. And we really only touch base with like the corresponding teams just to share insights and knowledge across the pond. Got it. And then finally, there is this localization kind of task force when it comes to product. So there are product managers that sit in the Philippines, in Indonesia, in Singapore, but each one of these product managers are regional. So I think for us, what we love is that all product managers think about their products across the region. This is how we enforce that the products themselves have to scale regionally from the moment they're built. But for some larger products, we do have representatives in a particular market just to make sure that that market's nuances are adequately captured. So for example, for direct debit, there's an Indonesian, you know, localization PM who then like looks after, you know, making sure the partnerships, the banks, et cetera, are well communicated with on that side. But I think the part that, you know, to me makes us stand out is really that we don't try to enforce that the product has to look the same in both markets. There's Mm. this very clear, acceptance that the product has to be localized and that there are people who are accountable for actually pushing that localization instead of trying to enforce a homogenous product, which is what I think a lot of regional companies end up trying to do. Because that is, the second, of course, is a lot more efficient and easy to pull off. But I think on the first one, if you can really calibrate that correctly, that's the secret sauce to making sure you succeed and hit it out of the park in both countries. 
That is amazing. Well noted, and thank you very much for that for that <laughs> answer. But I also want to find out from from uh, again whatever you can share. Don't don't share everything. Um, but as a company, what, aside from the thirty percent mom, the month on month growth that you look for as a benchmark for product market fit, I, I also want to know what type of metrics do you guys care about the most in 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 Send it. So actually, those metrics are pretty standard. They haven't changed since you know I joined the company. The first is um, month-on-month growth for total payments volume. So I think we want to hit 30% month-on-month. Um, I think actually as of this year, we've been clearing that 30% bar um, pretty well um, wow. month-on-month. It's actually been quite scary <laughs> the amount of growth. Yes. I think that you know brings with it challenges of its own when it comes to you know scaling the back office and everything else that's associated. But I think mm-hmm. that you know that's always our top metric. That's what we tie break against. It's the total mm-hmm. payments volume. People ask me a lot of times, you know, why it's volume and not number of customers, why it's not, you know, something else. And it really comes down to just market share. I think early on, what we care about is making sure that people know us in the market. Glycom synonymous with, hey, we're market leaders here. Yeah. And then our second metric, which we've started tracking post-launch and is something that, you know, now you can see through our SME initiatives and so forth is monthly active customers. So we want to have a similar kind of level of growth month on month, of course, in our monthly active customers, because now we're also starting to think about how do we scale out to SMEs? You know, we've, we've brought on all these enterprises to kind of, you know, bring out the volumes. How do we now make sure that SMEs also think of us as their best friend in the digitalization effort? Absolutely. And, and that's true because, again, other than the month-on-month growth that you have for product market fit, what are the key determinants as well as retention? Because if you're getting 30% month-on-month, but your churn or the amount of people that you're losing at the same time is also high, then you're always chasing tail, per se. But if you're keeping a, a bunch of a lot of your users and they keep coming back, then that right there is a recipe for success. Now, Again, you guys didn't stop uh, at this and you really wanted to double down. And recently, the reason why I really bugged the hell out of you (laughs) is because I saw something on LinkedIn that you are coming up with a level up accelerator. Can you talk about this and what's in store for the Philippine businesses that you talk about, especially the SMEs, to get this on board? So I think one of the things that we noticed through our Indonesian experience is that we grow when the startup community grows. We grow when there are more and more SMEs in the market, right? And so when we look at our own track record, you know, we're the first Southeast Asian investment for some of the largest VCs in the world, right? Excel, Kleiner, Perkins, they've never looked at a company before. And so I think we feel like part of our responsibility is to bring visibility to the startup ecosystem in the Philippines and to give that startup ecosystem, you know, MSMEs all the way up to, you know, growth stage startups, the ability to have one access to capital and two just acceleration towards that new digital economy, right? So I think up program was a way that we could give back to the community. So basically it's a business pitch. You basically submit an application online, tell us what your business model is, and we are accepting up to a thousand startups. We are sponsoring them. Yeah. (laughs) We are sponsoring them for up to a year of free services with us. So basically, I mean, we want to put our money where our mouth is basically, right? Amazing. We think we have an awesome product. We think that we can really help startups scale, help startups, you know, accelerate their growth with our products. And we're saying, try it with no strings attached. You know, we will cover your expenses, you know, up to like a certain amount. 
And I think that for most SMEs, it's almost a year's worth of just, we'll cover all the payments fees. You just use our services and figure out whether with no strings attached, no upfront capital from you, it's worth it to you to have online payments. Got it. And even if there were strings attached, again, coming from me, we, we you send it, ha. Huh? Again, we both use it for Indonesia and the Philippines. The reason why our big goal or vision is to really institutionalize how the podcasting community is and make this a real livelihood for content creators and audio. We are able to do that because we were presented. So again, if, if, if Hasso Share and Ron Sturia uses it, right, it's legit. All right. So I, I don't bullshit you here in this podcast. But I, now, uh, before I let you go, Yang, I, want, I have a couple of questions that, that really stuck out and I want to find out more about your journey. So let's pay it forward to the listeners. First one is you talked about, you, you mentioned you learned management tips early on in your career about being a great boss. Can you talk about that and how, what do you, would be your advice for first-time entrepreneurs or, or startup founders also who are now in the thick of it in their hustle? And what are your tips to make sure that you become the best leader that you can be? So I hope if my team is listening to this, that this, you know, that it resounds with them and it's something that I continue to practice. My favorite book, actually, um, like business book, is called Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek. Leaders Eat Last, yes. I think that's been my philosophy from day one. And I feel like, for me, there's sort of these three guiding principles when it comes to being a manager. Mm. The first is that you eat last. I feel like, at least to this day, I try to be the first online, the last to be off. Um, I know there will be times that my team is working without me, but I try to minimize that because to know that I'm on call for them, right? I think that ultimately you have to be willing to do the shit work (laughs) if you want someone else to be doing it for you. And so I think that I never want to get to a place where I am not willing to roll up my sleeves and just get it done. I think the second is mentorship is everything. And I think mentorship takes many different forms. But I remember that early on, I asked Moses, when did you stop doing one-on-ones with every single person in the company? And he said at 80 people. And I told myself, no matter what, until we have 80, I'm not even going to think about moving to any other structure. So I think to this day, we have now 75 people on the ground. I have one-on-ones, 30-minute one-on-ones with everyone at least once a quarter with some of the team, you know, once a month, once a week. And I think that for me, that FaceTime and that ability the team feel that sense of transparency is so important because you can drive home a mission statement in town halls. You can drive home a mission statement in every single sink that you have, but -hmm. until you're one-on-one with somebody, it's very difficult to really hear from them what they think of the mission you're trying to get them to believe in. And I think there's nothing like that FaceTime, especially during the pandemic for somebody to be able to be really upfront with you and say, I don't believe in this part of it or explain this part of it because I don't know what, how my day-to-day grind affects our overall mission. And I think that what I focus on these one-on-ones and I tell, you know, everyone, whether they're direct reports or not, I want to hear the upwards feedback as early as possible. I am humble enough to know I am not perfect. So tell me what I'm doing wrong or tell me the things that you don't understand and question everything. Mm -hmm. 
I think the happiest I am is when someone has listened closely enough to the mission statement, to the vision that I'm trying to lay out for them to start poking holes in it and say, but this, this seems hypocritical. Tell me why this makes sense. That's an amazing moment to me because it means that that person is so invested, he or she is actually questioning me. And I love that. So I think that dialogue is important. Nobody is obligated to work for me. Nobody's obligated to work for Send It. It's a two-way street, right? That person is sacrificing opportunity cost of pursuing other opportunities in their career. That person is sacrificing time away from their family, time away from other priorities in order to give me the best hours of his or her day. And so in return, it's my responsibility to figure out what this person wants for the rest of his or her life as well. And as much as possible, we have to give each one of our team members the opportunity to develop in the ways that they want to develop in the future, right? So I think that a very kind of like clear understanding I usually try to establish with my team is, I know you're not bound to us for the rest of your life. Where do you want to be where hopefully we are at great terms and you choose to pursue another opportunity? What do you hope to have learned from this experience? And what you know, opportunities can I give you while you're with us to make sure you're a better person or closer to your personal goals by the time you're leaving us? And I think that those three principles are really what guides me whenever I think about how I approach, I guess, the learning and development of everyone on my team. That is amazing. I totally agree because servant leadership is what it's all about. Thank you very much. Yang Yang for such an amazing episode I knew this was going to be a killer but before I let you go invite people over if they want to use Send It and again join the Level Up Accelerator where do they go and how do they do that? Visit our website um, it's www.zendit.co and just send us you know an inquiry um, the Level Up program is linked from there take a look at everything that we have to offer and of course feel free to reach out to me I'm on LinkedIn I'm you know readily available super happy to talk to any of you guys um, listening today all right thanks yang yang but before i let you go follow us on whatever podcast app you're listening to whether it's spotify or apple podcast and again if we did say some jargon don't worry if you want to know about wastewater treatment and all that it's going to be in the show notes on hustleshare.com and again if you want to be part of the community and grow this podcast with us it's going to be in the hustleshare community on facebook and lastly if you want to suggest a guest all you need to do is go and message us at on chatbot at m.me slash hustleshare powered by chatbot ph yang yang thank you very much Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Really looking forward to hearing this. All right. And I'll see you guys in the next episode. Peace.